Easter Sunday, there is a tradition in the church where the celebrant leading says, He is risen, and then people respond, He is risen indeed. And so, we declare, He is risen, and you say, He's risen. Ah, awesome. You guys are great. Well, hey, welcome here to Jericho. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho. And I'm so glad you're here with us on this Easter Sunday morning. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, uh, for a period of time, my family wasn't connected with a faith community at all. And then when I started going, things were confusing and puzzling to me. There's a lot of stuff that happens in church that was very confusing to me when I was growing up. So, for example, one of the things was it took me quite a long time to figure out when to stand and when to sit. People seem to just know this intuitively, and then sometimes it would happen spontaneously, and this was all very puzzling for me. Uh, some of the words and songs were very puzzling to me. It was also very puzzling to me when we did communion because uh, the pastor was quite clear that he said this was bread, but yet they served crackers. And he said wine, and I knew Welser's grape juice when I tasted it. And so that was confusing to me, but there were other things that puzzled me when our family went to church as well. Like we would say stuff uh, that I wasn't 100% sure what we were saying or why we were saying it. So as an example, take the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest recorded uh, descriptions or collections of what Christians believe. And the middle part reads as follows. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the part that confused me as a kid was on the third day, he rose again. The word again was what puzzled me because I had been in Sunday school for a little bit now and I had learned that Jesus rose from the dead once on Easter Sunday morning. And so that his apostles had somehow become confused and added the word again as if it was happening again and again and again to me was very puzzling that they would put this in. And then there's another line later on in this creed that was even more puzzling to me. It said, I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. And I can remember very clearly watching people around me mouth these words and say them out loud, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm not that old, but I think I'm smarter than everybody here. <laughs> because for some reason, they're all confused. They all think that they're going to a Catholic church or an apostolic church. But I know that this is a Baptist church. That is what the sign says on there. So I don't know why they're all about the Catholic church and the apostolic church. And so as a silent protest, as a seven-year-old, I would say when we got to this part in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Baptist Church <laughs> and the forgiveness of saints and, uh, and the forgiveness of sins because I didn't want to get caught up and be tricked like all the rest of those people that were just going through it not realizing in my youthful enthusiasm that when the Apostles' Creed invites us to declare our belief and conviction in the Holy Catholic Church, that's the church universal in all places at all times. And then apostolic being, uh, the word apostle means a sent one, that the church is sent uh, by Jesus to do His work uh, in the world. And I took another look at the creeds, though, as an adult, and I began to notice something else that puzzled me. 
And what puzzled me about the creeds as an adult was that there's an emphasis gap in the creeds, a missing piece of the puzzle. The creeds actually lean in particular directions, and they do so. See if you can spot it. Uh, And we'll use another creed, the Nicene Creed, which was formulated in the 4th century as a response to the spreading of inaccurate teaching that suggested maybe Jesus wasn't really the Son of God. He just became or appeared that way later on in his life. So the Nicene Creed was written uh, to try and strengthen the church's teaching about the two natures of Jesus, fully God and fully human. So it says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. It's a lot of ground that it covers in that paragraph, but there's a missing piece of the puzzle. And this didn't quite hit me until I picked up a book uh, in this last year by English theologian N.T. Wright, whom uh, I highly regard and highly recommend. And he notes that when we read the creeds, we're reading kind of like a highlights reel. We're reading a little bit like what people Uh, how they live their lives on social media, just posting about all the fantastic uh, peaks of their life and the great things that are happening and the real things that they want everybody else to know. But there's huge gaps in between what we post on social media in our lives, at least for some of us. Uh, But there's a missing element in the creeds. And it's right in this space right here. In this period, born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Like right in between that, There's a big gap. In fact, that's where the Gospels spend most of their time, on the life of Jesus. Not just on His birth, not just on His crucifixion and resurrection. We're missing a lot of space between those two sentences. Like, that's a big gap in many significant ways because the Gospels place the emphasis on the life of Jesus as well as on His death and resurrection. And if we miss that element, we're missing a massive part of the point. And so this forces us to ask the question, why is Jesus' life important? Why didn't He just get born at Christmas, get killed at Good Friday, and then get resurrected at Easter Sunday, and that's all that we needed to know about Him? Well, when we teach kids here at Jericho, One of the things that we try to help them understand, and one of the terms that we use, and I think it's a helpful one for us as adults as well, is we talk in terms of the big God story. And when we use that term, what we mean with the kids is helping them understand of God's work from beginning to end, not just the little slivers or the highlight reels. And so the big God story is really what we saw played out in that video at the beginning of our gathering, that throughout history, God has been unfolding His plan. And when it comes to Easter, we see the death and the resurrection of Jesus play a pivotal and life-changing role, not merely for humankind, but for you and for me. But we don't do that 
at the expense of thinking about Jesus' life. So turn with me in your Bibles or in your newly downloaded Jericho Ridge app, which has your Bible reading plan in it and has a Bible in it. Uh, And you can uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to see here why Easter is such good news. Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. The apostle is writing and says, God promised this good news long ago through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about His Son. In His earthly life, He was born into King David's family line. And He was shown to be the Son of God when He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ... God has given us the privilege and the authority to tell people everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and they will obey Him, bringing glory to His name. In these few short verses, we get an encapsulation of why Easter is such good news. And we're going to see that there's actually four elements to this. Four words that start with the letter P, the four P's of Easter. There's the problem, there's the promise, there's the person and the proclamation. So, we're going to start with the problem because, you see, the good news of Easter doesn't actually start at Easter with the resurrection. It doesn't start with Good Friday. It doesn't start with Palm Sunday. It doesn't start even with the manger. You have to go back further than that to find out why Easter is such a good news Story. It actually starts back in the garden, and it starts with a problem. You see, way back at the beginning of human history, our forebears, Adam and Eve, were given freedom to choose, and the bad news part of the story is that they chose, like each and every human being since them, to turn away from God. And as a result of that turning away from God and saying, God, I don't need or want you in my life, sin and death entered into our world, and sin separates us from God. And so, this creates a problem because separation from God impacts each and every person. Because to reject God's goodness, His commands in place that He's given us for our protection and for our flourishing is what the Bible calls sin and death, and they've been a part of our world and a part of each of our lives and every individual human heart since that day. And see, every story has a problem to overcome. And in the human story, in our lives and in our world, the problems to overcome are sin and death and separation from God. Paul goes on to talk extensively about this in the book of Romans. It's one of his core messages. And even picking up and later in this chapter in uh, verse 18, Paul says, you know, God is, is righteous, He's holy, and so He shows His anger from heaven against all sinfulness and wickedness, people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, because all of us have done this. All of us have actually sinned against God. But almost immediately into the story then, God introduces the second P, which is the promise, and He makes it right away to Adam and Eve. And he says, you know what? The problem is something you can't overcome yourself. I'm going to have to do this for you. 
I am going to come and rescue you. I myself will come and rescue you. God promised that He would not leave His us alone in the world suffering under the weight of this sin and separation. God promised that He would come, that He would make all things right, that evil may appear to have the upper hand for now, but that this will not last forever. And so Adam and Eve are promised that a deliverer will come through their offspring. Generations and generations and generations pass. And it still hasn't happened. But God reiterates His promise. He reiterates it again to Abraham. And then He reiterates it to King David. And He says, King David, uh, I will establish a rule, a kingdom like King David's, except my rulership will extend over all. David was one of the most rich and powerful and successful and capable kings in all of the Old Testament and in all of the ancient world. And he effected massive change in his culture and in his country, but even David couldn't effect change fundamentally and foundationally in his own heart. He still struggled and wrestled with sin. And each of us, God promised again to David, again, that one day a king would come from David's descendants. And this king would set up a kingdom that wouldn't just be a temporary kingdom that would end when he died. It would be a kingdom that would have no ending. It would be an eternal kingdom that would begin now and go throughout all and beyond time. And so God promises this to King David, that this king that's coming would bring something that each one of us desperately needed, peace for our hearts and for our weary souls. And people get tired as history marches on past David, and so God has to reiterate the promise again. So he reiterates the promise of rescue. He writes it down for people in the prophets and the holy scriptures. He says, I'm coming. I will release the captives and set them free, and I will extend and restore all things that have been lost and broken. Romans chapter 1, the text that we read, verse 2, said, God promised His good news long ago through His prophets and in the holy scriptures. And many long years pass after the prophets, and still... The promised one has not come. Nothing seems to be happening. In fact, it seems to be going from bad to worse because there's a period of absolute silence for 400 years. No prophets, no writings. It's almost as if God has abandoned them. And after 400 years, God chooses the time to enact His promise and to fulfill His promise. And then the promise becomes a person, the third element of our Easter promise. The person of Jesus. Romans 1.3 says it this way, this is the good news about God's Son. In His earthly life, He was born into King David's family. He's of a royal lineage. You see, part of the reason that Jesus' life is important is that we realize that Jesus came to show us by the way that He lived how deep the Father's love is for us. I love the way that our confession of faith, as Mennonite Brethren puts this, it says, 
Christ stands at the very center of Christian faith. In Him, God brought His many acts of self-revelation, self-disclosure in human history to a climax. In other words, God made Himself supremely known in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus, His life, the way in which He encountered people. Beforehand, God spoke through the prophets, but now at last, God reveals Himself to us in humankind in the person and work of Jesus, the life that He lives, the miracles that He does, the grace and mercy He embodied, the way He challenges injustice. New Testament scholar and historian Douglas Moo reminds us, this is actually why the focus of the Gospels is on the person of Jesus, not on just a dry set of propositions. Because as humans, we have a propensity to want to like a sets of rules and guidelines for us, but religion is about rules, but Christianity is about a person, and that person is Jesus. Look at the names of Jesus that just in these short verses, the names that are assigned to Him. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of David. So speaking about both that He's fully God and fully human. He's Messiah. He's Lord. This is our King, the one who is the way and the truth the one who is life. And that's why Easter is such a big deal for Christians. Because the resurrection ushers in a new era of redemption and reconciliation. Because in the person of Jesus, Romans 1.4 says, He was shown to be the Son of God when He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't hear what Paul is not saying in Romans 1 verse 4. He's not in any way suggesting that Jesus only became the Son of God on Easter morning when He was raised from the dead. The word shown there is really more like the word vindicated or demonstrated or declared. It's like the empty tomb is that place where if you want to know whether what God said was true about Jesus and whether what Jesus said about himself was true, you would go to the empty tomb and it shouts out that Jesus' life and the things that he taught, the way that he lived, and the things that you and I are called to follow him are the vindication of God's work and word in history. And you and I then are invited because we too, as people who have confessed Jesus as Lord, are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we then are invited to live according to the Spirit. And this is not always glamorous stuff. It often manifests itself in the small and unseen things of life. See, during Jesus' earthly ministry, He was shown to be the Son of God in weakness and in lowliness, in service and in humility. The humble king amongst his people is one who serves. But at that moment that the stone was rolled away from the tomb, Jesus is amongst his people with resurrected power. 
on Good Friday on the cross where Jesus willingly bled and suffered for you and I to do that which none of us can do for ourselves, and that is get rid of or atone for sin. We see our king hanging his head in apparent defeat. But then on Easter Sunday morning, he was shown, he was vindicated, he was declared as the risen, powerful, exalted king, where not even the most strongest thing that any of us as human beings will ever encounter in our life, that is death, not even death and the grave could hold on to him because his power extended beyond. We see the king risen in exaltation and might. We see the king conquering sin and death, and we worship. And that is why Easter is such a big deal for Christians, because we're told later on in the New Testament that Jesus' resurrection is like a down payment. It's a first installment of what is to come. And we're reminded that just as the Spirit raised Jesus, so too those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and that through that Spirit have assurance of their own resurrection from the dead and from the grave on that final day when Jesus the King comes to judge the living and the dead. And the good news is that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He solved the problem, the problem of sin that separates humankind from a holy God. He's fulfilled the promises that God made to His people through King David, through the prophets, through the Scriptures, and in the person of Jesus, in His life, the way He lived, in His death, His burial, and most supremely in His resurrection. God has declared and established His authority and His ruler as King over all things. And this is how our text this morning finishes. Look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 4, and into verse 5. Paul says, He is Jesus Christ our Lord. And through Christ, God has given you and I the privilege to tell people everywhere the wonderful things that God has done for them so that they will believe and they will obey and this will bring glory to His name. And that's where the fourth Letter P comes in to our Easter declaration. From problem to promise to person to profession, our profession, our invitation to participate in life. To come to the empty tomb because not just to come and behold or observe, but also to come and consider what it means for each of us. To ponder and to ask the question of belief. Now, many people, when we hear the word belief, they immediately think again of the creeds, a list of things mentally to assent to an affirmation in order to somehow maybe get into a Christian club somewhere. But just like the focus of the Gospels isn't on a set of propositions but on the person of Jesus, so to belief is a relational proposition, that believing you might have life in His name. So because to believe something is not merely to give mental assent to propositional statements. It's an expression of lived trust and devotion. 
Let me give you an example uh, that Mike and John uh, gave when they were teaching some of our students in the source program over uh, the last couple of months. So just we'll do a little thought experiment. Just imagine with me for a moment that Pastor Wally bursts through the doors of the banquet hall and he says, guys, guys, the building is on fire. Now, I've asked him not to do this so as not to alarm any of us. The building is not on fire. And if it were, we would have a very orderly plan as to how we would go about getting all of you there and getting the kids down. It's not on fire. But let's just pretend, pretend with me for a minute, that it was. You know, Pastor Wally bursts in. He says, the building is on fire. I was out in the hall. There's smoke everywhere on the hallways. Guys, you need to follow me. We need to leave here immediately. Like, I'm going to take us to safety. And then we just think to himself, well, hi, Pastor Wally. Nice to see you too. Um, we're just having coffee and connection time here. I'm not quite ready to move anywhere. We're just going to continue on. And we just kept going with everything else that was happening. We just said, oh, Chris and team, come sing. Don't worry about it. And Pastor Wally kept getting more and more animated. Guys, the building is on fire. Like, what are you doing? Why are you not actually following me and doing what I'm telling you to do? Like, it's legit. I was out in there. There's smoke. It's fully on fire. You see, we can say that we believe what Pastor Wally is telling us, all that we want. But until we actually begin to act in such a way that what he has told us is true, we don't actually believe him. We may have given mental assent to the notion of a fire somewhere, but if it's going to touch our lives and impact us, we can't just give mental assent. We actually have to live in congruence with it being true. And the same is actually true of the resurrection. It actually does not do well to say, huh, sure, why not? I guess God has enough power to raise somebody from the dead if He really wants to. I guess He's the King of the universe after all. You see, in order to actually demonstrate that you believe something, you have to live into it. You have to live as if it were true. Belief is an expression of lived trust and devotion. So when Paul here in this text says, the reason we have received a privileged commission and divine authority is to declare to others what God has done for them, the purpose is so that they will believe in Him. And that means that your life needs to reflect that yourself as a carrier of that message. Now, let me speak to those of you who are here this morning, and maybe you've come with someone or as a guest, or maybe you've hung around church for a long time, and stuff makes way more sense to you than it does to me, but you still say to yourself, you know what, I'm not, I'm not convinced that this resurrection thing is actually true. It's simply too much for me to believe. Friends, one of the interesting things about faith is that faith is a gift that God wants to give to you. It's not something you have to muster up enough internal fortitude and conviction to get there. This is a gracious gift from God who loves you, who wants to be in relationship with you. But you have to take the first step on that journey.
and allow God to say, just like some of his own disciples did, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I think that I could begin to see that this is true and I'm going to keep taking steps and I want you to help me live into it more and more and more and more. Belief is a relational proposition. The second part of this declaration is equally important, however, because it's not just about what you or how you believe. We're also to, verse 5 says, obey. John 14, verse 15 reminds us that if we say that we love Jesus, we will obey the things that He commanded. And so, friends, let me put it to you very plainly this morning. If you have no intention of following Jesus' teachings, His ethical commands that He's established to keep you from harm, to guide you to places of wisdom and peace, don't use the word Christian to describe yourself. Because a Christian is one who follows, one who loves Jesus and desires to increasingly obey Him. And so you have no business using the label to describe yourself if you do not in any way intend to live a life that models itself after Jesus and obeys the things that He commanded us to do. Things like compassion for those who are poor, a sense of purity and holiness in the area of sexuality, generosity in the area of the things that we own and are stewards of, patience when people or circumstances try or trouble you. These are the things Jesus, just a short, short example of things Jesus has called us to obey. And so when we obey, when we declare our belief, it means that we also desire to express our obedience to Him. And this is part of the reason, again, that the Gospels give us such an incredible window into the way in which Jesus lived so that we could see God's revelation and design for us as people. And that's what it means to be a Christian is saying God to God and other people, by the empowering work of your Holy Spirit, Jesus, I desire to pattern my life after you and be the one that I follow. See, Christianity is an experience of imitating Jesus. Uh, author Diana Butler Bass wrote that in her book, Christianity After Religion. And she makes a case that uh, when we get tripped up is sometimes when we begin to fall into the temptation just to give mental assent to a bunch of propositions and not change anything about our lives whatsoever. See, Christianity isn't a set of dead religious principles to be blindly followed. It's a lived experience of obeying and seeking to imitate Jesus. And so if you're a person who names the name of Jesus, Easter is a good time to ask ourselves again, am I following in the footsteps of the one whom I declare is my leader? Or am I just nodding mental assent to a bunch of words on a page. The resurrection is an invitation for us to obey and to consider our obedience, but also to declare, to declare the substance of Christian hope. This is what we in faith proclaim, that we desire to live out of a place of grace-filled authority that comes from a life lived in congruity with what we know to be true in our hearts, in our heads, 
and in our hands. See, none of us does this perfectly, but we press in for forgiveness and mercy as we do. This brings increasing glory, Paul says, to the name of Jesus, our King, when we believe and obey and declare, and believe and obey and declare, and believe and obey and declare with our lives the resurrection truth. I believe in Jesus Christ, who on the third day rose from the grave. And Diana Butler Bass, in this book, suggests that in order to fully live into this, we can return again to that notion of the word believe as a lived reality. And, and understand that what it means to say that I believe in something is really that I trust that that is true. And so the creeds could say, I trust in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and I trust in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and I trust in the resurrection, and I trust in the Holy Spirit, and I trust in the communion of saints, and I trust in the forgiveness of sins. Because when we insert ourselves as the ones who are trusting, the tone changes, doesn't it, to that creed, and the creed actually becomes more like a prayer. It evokes humility, it evokes hope, and it involves and evokes faithful supplication. And so this resurrection morning, we are gathered here to declare not only with our voices, but also with our lives that we trust in our King. Let's pray together and then we will respond. I want to pray particularly uh, if you're here today and um, you want to take that step of declaring and saying, I do want to trust in Jesus. And so if that's you, you would just pray and say, God, I do trust you. I trust that you are who you say you are. Jesus, I believe, I trust, I place my life into your hands and your care as an act of surrender and trust. I'm willing, God, to live in the way in which you desire for me to live, in obedience and in faith. And God promises, and he is always faithful to his promises, he promises that when we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, when we say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We move to a place where we are saved, we are rescued, we are redeemed, and God's grace and his mercy flows into our lives. And so be assured of that, friend, here in this place today. No one who trusts, no one who hopes, places their hope in Jesus will be put to shame, the scripture says. That's why our eyes are fixed on him. And so we pray and say, God, I give my heart to you. The all-powerful one who created the universe and Jesus Christ, God's only son, who through the power of the Holy Spirit was born 
of the Virgin Mary, and I give my heart in trust to the Holy Spirit, devoting myself to the communion of saints, trusting in the forgiveness of sins, in the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.